welcome back to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. I'm your host, I am Ted King, and you are in store for a great one today, The Life of a Chef. We will dig into the life of a chef today, Chef Matt Accarino, Michelin-starred chef eight times over Matt Accarino. Matt and his team at SPQR in San Francisco continue to earn the accolades to produce some of the city's, no, honestly, the country's finest dining. And as if the life of a chef is not busy enough, Matt is a wicked fast cyclist. Besides being in the kitchen, he likes nothing more than sitting on the front of a group and spewing out enormous watts. He is articulate. He is witty. He's a friend of mine for years now, especially after I spent a good chunk of time living in the Bay Area. Matt will spin a yarn. I loved this conversation, learning a thing or two about my friend, and I know that you will too. This conversation took place earlier this spring up in Sonoma County, California. Perhaps you've seen that I've been spending some time up there, maybe maybe 90 minutes north of San Francisco, despite Laura and I moving east. Laura and I have been part of this ongoing Mill District project, also called the Velo Club, which you'll hear about a little bit today in the pod. Up in the quaint wine country town of Healdsburg, this is a project overlaying beautifully done real estate with a cycling twist. Now, I could go on and on explaining it, but if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a video is worth 10,000. Pay a visit to Mill District Healdsburg. Dot com for more. Please note in this pod, we talked before Matt and I raced Dirty Kansas this June. He won the 100-mile edition race in 2018, so Matt was back for the big dog here in 2019, hence why we were talking about a forthcoming Dirty Kansas. And speaking of riding bikes in super unique spots, be it wine country or the fields of Kansas, I am freshly back from Iceland and the Rift Gravel Race. In a word, wow. I have never been to Iceland. I was thrilled to have had the chance to go to Iceland. It was just so otherworldly. The landscape at times had me thinking that we were racing on the moon. Other times the the terra firma beneath our tires resembled what I think the bottom of the ocean floor looks like. It was dark black sands. It was enormous rock formations. Stunning waterfalls, sideways rain, countless river crossings. Although if I were to count, I'd say maybe a dozen or so. The Rift, the race was awesome. Stay tuned for a new video from Ansel coming out about that. No longer called the Grode to Kansas, folks. Look for a new King of the Ride video installment coming soon. Destination, Iceland. And Rooted Vermont. Folks, you've been listening to me yap about this event, and it is here. Rooted Vermont is this weekend. Three days of fun and partying. Oh, and a bike race to cap it all off on Sunday. Capped at 550 riders, although as many as 800 are expected with friends and fam coming out to celebrate. We are thrilled with the outpouring of support for our inaugural year. And next up after that, a little oxygen deprivation with Leadville, then SBTGRVL. Steamboat Gravel, that's going to be another incredibly awesome inaugural race. Vermont Overland at the end of August, and maybe, just maybe, a few free days are on the docket after that. Or maybe not. Hey, hey, 
I called Bernal for the TDF win. Although I think a lot of people did that. Man, what a cool character. Waiting till the very end to pounce to take the jersey. Youngest racer at this year's tour. First from his nation of cycling-crazed Colombians. Chapeau, Egon Bernal. Incredible race to watch. Thanks goes out to Splat's Sunscreen for supporting today's pod. Summer is in full swing. It is hot out, ladies and gentlemen. It is sunny out. You probably have your sunscreen hidden away in a closet or under your sink, somewhere gummed up and messy with last year's or last decade's sunscreen. Splat's, however, makes it easy with single-serve packets of sunscreen, ideal for people like me, people like you who are on the go. I keep these packs handy in my backpack, in my car. I put them in my saddlebag. I put them in my jersey pocket. I take them with me all the time. Definitely check out Splats Sunscreen at SplatsSunscreen.com and use code KING at checkout for 20% off. Ladies and gentlemen, those reviews you leave on whatever podcast app you're using right now, those reviews are incredibly helpful. Five-star reviews are appreciated, but any feedback is going to make this podcast better. Thanks for taking just a few seconds to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado... Please enjoy this conversation with Chef Matt Acarino. Okay, here's the deal, Matt. It is uh, 3.11. Um, probably two hours ago I finished up the ride you would finish up the ride I went back to uh, our shared homestead and I took a shower you rushed over here to the site at Mill District and cooked up a feast and you're still wearing chamois chamois time is training time what time did the chamois go on today what time did your day start my day my day started at your day started three weeks ago yeah, I can't even remember. What time did I get up today? I don't know, 6.30? Something like that? 6.30? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I didn't get the bonus ride. Yeah. Um, that I, was I unintentional. Was, I, I was heading to fill up the support vehicle with gas at the time that I saw you coming back from the, the AM Dawn Patrol bonus ride. So at that point, you're a mechanic and a Swanee ride leader chef. I'm pretty sure that you and I did a 20... Actually, I did time it today. Yeah. It was a 21-mile pull. Solid. So. Great group today. Yeah. Um, we've got a great group throughout. Uh, yeah, talk to me. We will, We will. of course, have prefaced what the Mill District is. Um, Consequently, though, mm-hmm. this amount of chamois time is not normal. No. Uh, I pro- I In general that. and specifically for me. <laughs> Good. That's, that's wise. Uh, yes. Have you ever rolled into SPQR in chamois and gone straight to work? No, thank God. Okay, good. That would actually be weird. Yes. Um, but I but I have rolled in to check on the restaurant many times in Chamois, and then I just roll right back out. That's smart. Yeah. All right. Um, it's like a coffee stop. So let's jump in the way, way back machine. Cycling has, has been part of your life for... A very long time. At what point in your life do you decide that you're an aspiring professional cyclist? Tell me, how'd you get into cycling? Start Gosh, it was my, my best friend's father when I was in third grade, uh-huh. something somewhere around there. I think it was 
13 or something. I mean, I you know, rode BMX bikes and all this kind of stuff, but he said, let's go for a ride. So I said, great. So he was super into cycling, make us get up at three in the morning to watch the 30 minute synopsis of the Tour de France coverage at the time. Nice. Now you can watch it, you know, live the whole way. On your phone in the yeah, middle of a ride. Pretty much. Uh-huh. Um, so he said, let's go for a ride. Took us out for kind of, I don't know, it was, it, it was double digits, maybe 18 miles. And I thought I was nearly dead. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I was on a BMX bike, actually, mm-hmm. which is, it's an arduous task. Uh, but I was pretty hooked on it. And so I started riding right away. Saved up my money from my after-school jobs. Bought myself a, a racing bike and hit the circuit and loved it and raced for quite a while uh, through my teens until I fell outside playing frisbee in front of high school. Uh, randomly and found out that I had a unknown uh, or previously unknown to me uh, bone tumor in my right femur hmm. that was thankfully benign but meant that I lost seven inches of my right leg and didn't walk for a couple of years and it was, it was super dramatic. Uh, to say the least. Yeah, and challenging. Those are formidable years to not have the ability to walk. Yes. Shoot. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a, I guess, a, an early-ish and very tough spot to be in in my life but so I, you're you said in high school yeah and so I sort of 16-ish 18-ish how old are you when that so happens maybe 16 and okay. kind of finished up a good portion of high school from from a bed yep and where is this you were born and raised in you were born in st louis raised in yeah raised in st louis for a while my dad was a was a uh, what do they call them stringers you uh, uh you follow follow uh the police scanner and take video we had a we had a faux wood panel station wagon and he would go out and get the videos and sell them to the networks and then eventually he got a job working for a network and then he became the station manager and then they moved him to new york and that's how we moved to new york then new jersey i'm baffled right now is that like that's like a pre-reality tv kind of thing yeah that's like when people took videotapes and yeah. had to deliver the actual video vhs tape. that's yeah. sick okay i yeah. digress an amazing yeah an amazing uh but yeah, St. Louis was kind of the tornado alley. I think the last time, the last thing I really remember there was when the, it flooded all the way up to the arch. Uh, For real? Yeah, the, the river flooded up to the Great arch. Scott, that was, that's a lot of rain. Yeah, that was a lot of water. Okay. Um, but yeah, so then I was in, in New Jersey at that point. Went to high school in New Jersey. Had this terrible accident in New Jersey. And uh, yeah, so I sort of had to take stock of one's life as, as you might. I, you know, I went back to, did some racing at post injury, but it was not quite uh, as successful as one would want it to be. And who knows what you're ever meant to do. So at some, some point I had to take stock and think, well, gee, I'm probably not gonna be a bike racer. What, what else can I be good at? And I'd always enjoyed cooking and food and being a young athlete, taking care of my diet. Mm-hmm. So I sort of transitioned into that. And, you know, much like people that are, end up being great bike racers, you probably just get on a bike and somebody says, gee, you're really fast. Or, you're, you know, if you, with a little bit of training, you know, you, you could be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people kind of said that about me cooking everywhere I went. And so one thing led to another. I went to culinary school in Poughkeepsie. Um, oh, yeah. And started, started, hit the circuit and started working. And, you know, 20 years go by in the blink of an eye at that point because... A chef's life is a long day. So there's there's chicken and egg, and in this scenario, well, I've just jumped the shark here. Cycling led to being laid up, which led to your culinary career, which has also gone full circle because you have interwoven cycling back into your culinary career um, in a variety of ways. 
um, here in the Healdsburg Velo Club, for example. Um, but let's talk about the the culinary pursuits that you have. So you're you're laid up. You decide that you have, or you find that you have a a knack for cooking. Is it pretty early on that you're receiving these this praise to say, yeah, you know what, kid, you got it. You're a decent chef. Are you doing this like cooking for your friends' parents, cooking for your buddies, or are you already in a restaurant straight out of? No, right, right into a restaurant. There was a, there was a little restaurant, um, and I remember I'd go in there and I would prep, uh-huh. and I think I might have waited tables there too. Uh, but at one point, anyway, someone as magically, you know, they call this thing the magic apron in the culinary business, which is, hey, uh, so-and-so called out sick today, so do you think you could work the grill, you know, or something? And that's what it is. And, and you're called up to the bigs. Yeah, and somebody just says, you know, that's <laughs> like, it. It's I guess like, I work the grill. And so then you just, you know, if you're ambitious, you jump in and you do it. And, uh-huh. you know, when you complete it successfully, at the end of the night, they just go, oh, good job. And you're in. And it's like, that's, it's that fast. Yeah. <laughs> So and that's it, literally what happened to me. And the next thing I know that, you know, that, that guy never came back. And now I was the, the grill cook or the saute cook or whatever it was back then. And, and, uh, you know, the, if you can take on a challenge in life and, and, you know, not master, but certainly complete that challenge, um, things, things tend to start happening. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine that it's a area that is, uh, 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 lauded in praise the the kitchen you know i mean it's it's a pretty it's a busy area it's industrious you are you are cooking to to please an audience that you don't necessarily see firsthand whereas you know success on the bike you, you cross the finish line first and you're going to be in the media you're going to get pictures you're going to suddenly feel like a star having had the cycling in your background like what what was your determination in the cooking world was it do you have the fire from within? Did you want to prove something? Did you want to uh, just have success in whatever it is you were doing? Where's your drive come from? Yeah, the drive, the drive in, in cooking is, I think there's an ingrained hospitality aspect that you have to have that is, you know, says to you that you want to cook f- for others as opposed to eat, um, that you want to mm-hmm do things, you know, it's a, the sort of a service mentality. And I think that that has to really be there first and foremost. And it's not, not everyone has that, that bug to do that, but the greatest achievements for me aren't you know, even today are not culinary. It's not like, look at this dish that I made. It's the most amazing looking thing or something is, is when I'm able to connect with a customer or connect with somebody that I'm cooking for, um, and make a, make a new connection, sometimes even just in life mm-hmm. because of that experience. It's, it's the culmination of that total experience that, that's most fulfilling about that. But I think there's something very meditative that's much like bike racing and, or at least bike training, you know, riding a bike training, all these mm-hmm. things. Like, why do we ride the same hills over and over again? Why do we do the same things? Why do we try to get better yeah. at what we're doing in the very repetitive nature of being on a bike and doing things and being in a group and all that stuff is very much dovetails with what happens in a, in a professional kitchen being, you know, individually excellent, Big time. Um, but also be able to work as part of a team. And so those are the moments when everything comes together. And I, I bike racing is kind of like that as well. I mean, when you cross the finish line first, it's, it's not, it's not like you just got on a bike and rode and it just magically happened. There's usually, you know, you trained, you slept enough, you ate enough, you're, you know, if you're on a team, something happened with your machinery, your mechanics, your, 
there's all these things and then your teammates and I mean, the whole thing has to come together. And so it's, it's always interesting to me to see people win, whether it's a bike race or whatever these massive, especially sports achievements. And you see all the emotion that comes flooding. What people mm-hmm. don't realize is at least in my mind, I don't think that that's that person going, wow, I beat everybody else. I'm so happy. Mm-hmm. It's that all the stuff I went through, the injuries, the, the setbacks, all these things all culminate in this happened because I never gave up. Yeah. And so there's something in the, in the culinary world, in the hospitality world that is very much, I mean, there, you know, God forbid, but we, we have times when people don't absolutely love every single thing that we do in a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so how we handle that and then how we reboot or reset and if we made an error, how we come back at that is not different. Very, very well said. Uh, I'm picturing Alberto Bettiol, young kid, 25 years old on EF, who wins his first ever bike race, which happens to be Tour of Flanders. And, you know, he's this kid who crosses the line and he's stoked and he's smiling and he, he has a great victory celebration. But then it's not until he gets on the phone. I think it's with his mom. He's Italian, so a very close familial relation. And that's when he breaks down. And it is the culmination of... of Repetition, time and time and time and time again, doing the same same intervals with the same group, uh, the the number of kilometers, miles that he's ticked off at home, is extraordinary. Not yet countless, but probably in the hundred thousand k range. Translating that to the to the culinary world, yeah, it's 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 not often. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's not often that you're making a new plate, a new meal every single time. Like your job is to is to uh, seek perfection in repetition. So when you serve a plate, it's something you've made thousands of times, that particular plate, and you want it to come out exactly the way, you know, better than the last time, which is which is this this sort of idyllic presentation that happens in your mind, but not necessarily every time on that plate. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's maniacal, right? It's the same thing as riding a bike. Here I am making this, you know, and people, people always ask you, as a chef, what's your signature dish? Yeah. As though you get to choose. You don't get to choose. Uh-huh. You know who chooses that? Your customers. Because yeah. they're the ones that decide that they want to ask you for something. I mean, I remember we have this dish that we do at SBQR. It's a smoked smoked flour pasta fettuccine, and then we, we bind and it, it with It is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my initial, I think it was like 2011 or something. I came up with this dish because I wanted to do something that was carbonara-like, but I didn't want to run the shtick of doing something that was like, you know, smoky and black peppery and egg and all this stuff. So I said, all right, great. Let's do something California version. So we'll take sea urchin, which is considered an ocean pest. And we're going to incorporate that into this dish. And we'll just for fun, we'll top it since there's no egg in it otherwise. We'll top it with a quail egg, a sunny side up quail egg to be evocative. And I even had a person make a dish that we served it in at some point that is glazed to look like a quail egg. That's how many of these. Stunning. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, 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 we've paid a lot of bills on smoked fettuccine with sea urchin. Yeah. But now as such that sea urchin has become such a popular ingredient in the years since um, that it's horribly expensive and, and uh, very, very uh, difficult to find locally. So mm-hmm. the dish is rarely on the menu because it's only when it shows up in the availability list locally that I pick it up. Otherwise, you know, a lot of times it's just reserved for the sort of the really nice Hokkaido yeah. sea urchin that comes out of Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes is, in that box, little wooden box. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something you're going to put into pasta. I mean, sure. you can if price is no object. Okay. Uh, and, and 
you know, we talk about winning a bike race and, and all these emotions come out. You have received the highest of high accolades in the culinary world. What is the, do you have that same emotional uh, release when you, when you received your first Michelin star, for example, when you, when you are named best new chef 2014? Well, actually, let's start right there. What does it mean? You are not a new chef in 2014. What does it mean to be named best new chef? I, th I think the technical, the technical term limit is you have to be within the first five years. And I was at my fourth year. So I, I was I was almost okay. out. I was getting I was getting worried that I was going to be out. So got it. I, I, got know, it. I, I skated under. And best I mean first five years of being head chef at a restaurant. Yeah. Okay. Well, so which, which was interesting for me because I had I had spent a number of years running restaurants for other chefs, mm -hmm. which at the time I thought, oh, you know, well I've run all these restaurants. <laughs> it's not until you have your own restaurant that you realize. Yeah, you're you're running someone's restaurant, but the amount of money you had to fundraise to open it, and the construction, and all the headaches, and all the legalities, and permits, and all all of those hurdles to jump through mm -hmm. that restaurateurs go through is so much more difficult than just coming in, making a menu, cooking, hiring. If you, I mean, that's that's has its pitfalls, but. Mm -hmm. The other part is worse, and and you do it less often, so that no one is as practiced at it, and so opening up new restaurants is is difficult. So I have, I have respect for many of my mentors that I've opened a bunch of restaurants for at this point in my career because I could see just how difficult those things are having having a restaurant that I I work in that's mine. Um, can I can I bastardize this translation? Is being the executive chef of a restaurant, is that akin to being the, the, the GM of a team? So you're not just a sports director on a mic in a car saying, hey, so-and-so go attack, but you're overseeing the entire thing and you're overseeing your other chefs in the kitchen and the, you're seeing the finances and so forth. Is that accurate or no? It can be. I mean, it depends on the size of the team. So yeah. the team gets big enough, you know, maybe you have enough different positions, but my restaurant's 50 seats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, I mean, I change light bulbs. I try not to plunge toilets, but... <laughs> let's talk Let's talk about <laughs> but I'm SBQR. Trying try to make food most of the time. First, SBQR. Now, if you ask my dad, he would know exactly what it means. I had to Google it. Do you know what SBQR means? The actual acronym? You want, you want the English? I mean, there's... there's uh, let's do it all. We let's start, start in Roman. Sono puerchi questo romani. means all Romans are pigs. You don't have that translation, do no, you? No, I don't. Yeah, that's that's a that's a. They like to say that in Italy. Okay, it's a joke in Italy. To say Italiano. It's okay. Senat Senatus Populesque Romanus. So for the Senate and people of Rome is the English translation, but that's Latin actually. Um, I, I was thinking that wasn't right when I said that's Roman. Okay. Yeah, it was. It's basically <laughs> it was the calling card of the Roman Empire, and okay. you know when the restaurant was first opened, I was not actually not the first chef. Hmm. Uh, the first chef, they wanted to do a really simple Roman trattoria, almost paying homage to all the sort of small fried dishes like fried artichokes and tripe and things that you find in the tripa. Yeah, in the uh, in the Roman um, the bars sort of vernacular. Yeah, good old Rome. Interesting. Okay. So, of course, being a young, ambitious chef, I said, "Well." You know, I'll, I would like to work with you guys. I will fix your restaurant, and you must open me another one <laughs> within a couple of years. And, and so I said, "Sure, we'll do that." You know, claim and, you said that. I like that. Yeah. Okay. And, then, and then what you realize is that you know you should get everything in writing um, <laughs> in life. Yeah. So listeners, 
get everything in writing. We live um, in a litigious world. Well, we never opened that restaurant. So I just kept there and much like, uh, I mean, I'm a hammer and work is the nail. So I'm not going to stop. And mm -hmm. so if I didn't have a place to unleash my ambitions elsewhere, I unleashed them, I suppose, there. It wasn't really my goal to get Michelin stars or to, to but it, it was definitely my goal to be the best cook that I could be and to mm -hmm. do the best things that I could do. And certainly those forms of notoriety are great. I mean, I, when I got my first Michelin star, yeah. it was the fall of 2012, I cried. Yeah. They call you. Yeah. They, you know, and it's sort of this, when you, when you might be getting close to hitting this moment where you get your star, you know, they have to reach out at some point to your publicist or to you or to the restaurant or whatever and say, Hey, you know, could we have Ted's cell phone number? Mm -hmm. We have Matt's cell phone number because we might want to call him. By the way, it's the Michelin guide. So at that but point, there's no guarantee when they say we might need to reach out. Like presumably well, they've right. done so the, the homework. So for the, so for the first time, yeah. they're not going to do that if they're not going to call you and give you a star, I, I suppose, right? Because mm -hmm. that'd be kind of mean. <laughs> that'd Correct. Be, that'd be mean-spirited. Then you're just that. on deck forever. Yeah. Game but, over. So, still so swinging then, the bat. So then I think when you get your first star or when you're going to get, you know, something like that, then the first, the very first time there's the cat might come out of the bag a little bit, uh -huh. but you just can't be sure. Yeah. So you, you know, it's those things you have this internal dialogue and you never quite let yourself believe that something's going to happen. So it happens. I cry. I'm proud of it. Yeah, for <laughs> um, sure. But what goes on from there? And I, I, would, I guess I would wonder, like, can you, can you ask like Chris Froome or one of these guys that's won the tour a couple of times? Like, does it feel the same, you know, when, when you start the tour and people go, you should be winning mm -hmm. and you better win. And we'll, we're going to, you know, take something out of you if you don't win. And then if you do win, you know, then you should say something. And it's sort of like become like, how, so how does that feel? And I guess it probably is how you feel by the time I'm seven times now mm -hmm. headed for an eighth. Consecutive. Consecutive for a Michelin star. And, okay, keep going. And, and, and so I don't cry anymore. Yeah. And actually, to be honest, don't really think about it but I, I don't mean that that I don't care and I don't mean that that it doesn't drive me what I mean is I try not to let it bother me uh -huh. and then you get to sort of a week away and you kind of know that the announcements are coming soon because you know when the guide gets released and so yeah, this year yeah. they've told us they're going to do all of California and that the guide is for all of California for the first time because it's just been the Bay Area for a long time so this is a big push by Michelin to broaden that mm -hmm. which is kind of exciting for the rest of California but that means it's in June so then we're a month away, less than a month away. And so I start to think about it. And then every year you start to go, oh no, what happens? Because what is the optics of, if, do I lose the star? Because sure. you can sure. lose it. People lose it. Um, I have done nothing to try to gain another one. So I would be gobsmacked to see that happen. I think you, it, again, it's all about goals and where you want to be. And I think we're really happy with where we are. Mm -hmm. And doesn't mean we don't push, but we're not trying to convert our restaurant to all tasting menu. We're not trying to, you know, the SPQR is a very convivial kind of place. And what, what you want to do when you have a business is be really consistent. So we want to be really consistent for our customers and our guests and not be trying to move around and not be this place that's so ambitional that every time you come, it's a little more expensive and more fancy and more, you know, and, and then it never is really the same thing. So we're trying to, much like cycling, we're, we're trying to be the same thing. We're trying mm -hmm. to be consistently good. Mm -hmm. at what we do, but you still panic right before this thing comes out because what if you don't get it and what are the optics of that? And that's, so that's always terrifying. And then 
they call you and they tell you that you've gotten it for another year and you breathe a huge sigh of relief and then we have a couple minutes of chit chat and then they go on and call the next chef. So it's... Uh, Are you speaking with the dude in English or is he French in English? Uh, it'll be... Or gal. Yeah, it'll be a gal. So it was a gal last year. Mm-hmm. Um, they do change the directors of the guides every couple of years. Then yeah. um, usually there's an overall director for the guides worldwide that you don't necessarily get that. Maybe the three-star recipients hear from that person, but yeah. I don't. So I hear from the guide for the, the director of the guide for North America. How many, uh, how many restaurants in North America receive a star of any variety? One, two, three. Well, I mean, currently the Bay Area, which mm-hmm. is be anywhere from Healdsburg, where we're sitting right now, yep. all the way down to... Uh, Santa Cruz almost area. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, from the coast out to Oakland area, a bit mm-hmm. further than there, I suppose. Um, so it's a pretty broad area. has about 30 okay. one-star restaurants. And then you um, migrate east. I mean, like the Central Valley through Nevada probably has far fewer. Yeah, so then or they, the they stop. So they're uh, not even the rating. Atlantic. They're not even rating there. So what will be exciting about what happens in June is it'll it'll literally supposedly be sort of from the north all the way to the south, which Los Angeles had a Michelin guide for a number of years. They stopped. I'm not kidding. And then they haven't. So I think maybe 2008 was the last year that they had a guide in Los Angeles. So now all of those chefs that have, well, I was two stars in 2008. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but haven't seen anything in 10 years. Oh gosh. So now they're back in. Uh-huh. So I think there's a lot of excitement about it and certainly, and I think what, what, what awards are, are, are much like what victories are, plum, plumars are in cycling. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a reflection. I mean, you don't win if you don't train, you don't win if you're not any good. It, and if you do, it's, it's gotta be some kind of, I mean, what the whole field goes down, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're the only one that survives and you have a solo break. I mean, I guess, but but, um, <laughs> the number of times I thought that, my career, I'm like, I'm going to keep pushing here because the entire peloton might fall over. Yeah, and I could so, win this stage. There are not too many mistakes, so I think you 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 have to put the work in, and if you put the work in, and and, and it becomes a reflection of of your work, and that's mm-hmm. what I've always been most proud of about whether it was the Food and Wine Best New Chef Award that I won, or the Michelin Stars, or mm-hmm. James Beard nominations. Is th- they're all they're all things that reflect some confidence in in the overall body and consistency of your work which means that you know you're you're doing it and you know mm-hmm. the thing is what you realize as you get older and I, as you spend more time doing anything is that you know you're doing it mm-hmm. and and you just have to keep doing it yeah well right it's not like presumably it's not like you're gonna have a, a culminating award and then mic drop and walk away say, but oh, yeah, I, I mean just- do you remember when you were when you first started in the professional ranks and you mm-hmm. sort of like didn't know what you're getting into and you go, am I mm-hmm. going to be good enough? And, mm-hmm. and, and am I going to be able to hang? And and you have all these questions and then all of a sudden those questions, once you're there, are answered. Yeah. And if you if there wasn't something you needed to do and you to keep up and now, now you need to do it, then, you know, for the most part, you figure out like, well, I'm not going to get by skipping rides, skipping training rides or not sleeping or whatever it is that you're, you know, kind of playing games at. Then once right. you're at this level, then everything really matters. Then you... It's just all part of the routine, right? Yeah, you follow it, the it, routine. Yeah, and it's great to be rewarded. I remember, this is going to sound strange, I remember winning my my second ever professional bike race and thinking, as my hands are in the air, I'm sort of coasting after after the finish line. I remember thinking, it, is this it? Like, I'd already won one, so then you sort of question, are you going to win another? And then I won another, and, and I'm like, what, what? What else is there? Like, is this the highlight? And then, you know, you realize that cycling 
is so much more. And so, you know, at that point I'm racing domestically and then you, you make the leap to Europe and, and there's always, always people who are going to be that much better or keeping you on your toes or, you know, competitions that, that fierce. And of course I never won any European bike races. So it's, uh, time waits for nobody. It's cool to, to keep that challenge. So speaking of that, I mean, you were a very busy individual. What point does your culinary pursuit overlap again back into the cycling world because you know you you're you're very much involved in the cycling world so what's that reintroduction to cycling like yeah i mean it was it was really that i was off a bike for gosh like 20 years i mean literally didn't even touch a bike um and that was you know the associated leg pain after my surgeries and i had a bunch of metal and, th and things put into my leg to sort of make that right and a lot of physical therapy. And now, I mean, I walk completely fine. You'd never even, looking at me, you'd never know. There is a scar that goes from the, above my right knee all the way up my to my hip. Mm -hmm. um, this, but that's even, that's faded with time. And it wasn't until my sort of mid-30s that I got back into cycling. And I just got on a bike one day and all of a sudden realized that it was like the exact same feeling you get when you're 13 years old or something. And you get on a bike for the first time and do this ride that you think is pretty epic. Mm -hmm. And at the end, you're sort of exhausted and kind of want to die but you've also feel like you've lived an amazing free moment in your life and uh so i felt that all over again but i happened to be you know many years on and mm -hmm. and uh and so that that just proceeded from one thing to the next and so i started doing some racing and uh quickly where i actually remember because i guess i'd been a cat too or something um when i finished up in the first part of my life. And so I go, I go back and they pull up my license number and the guy <laughs> says, so you're a cat too. And I said, that can't possibly be right. And, yeah. and so I went and I took a one day license out and I raced my first race. And I think I got second place with cat five or something. It was kind of terrifying. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so the guy, the guy turns to me and, and I guess I raced. Yeah. He says, are you racing again today? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, you're not a cat five anymore. <laughs> Something Congratulations. like that. Yeah. So I got moved up. up. I got moved up after my first race <laughs> to a four. Um, but, you know, I got back, I got back into that. And what I started to realize is I, I, I guess I, I'm a person that sees a lot of connections and things. And I see a lot of, a lot of uh, ways to be involved in, um, with what I do in the kitchen and how that translates into athleticism and a working and I mean certainly I think we met at one point where I was cooking for George Hincappy at his fondo and you came right. down as a guest yeah and then we ride together and just what I've realized is there's a community and a camaraderie amongst riders and there's a similar community and camaraderie amongst chefs and for the longest time I started to think that gee these kind of things are like constantly interwoven because there are so many things about kitchen life and and I think athletic life that are are very 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 similar that for me they kind of became this interwoven pattern and it's only, I guess more recently my thoughts on it have started to diverge to the point where I realized that you know I want to be an exceptional bike rider whatever that means whether I'm going to go race dirty Kansas next to you and kind of see what that's, I mean, it's again, it's like, I'm terrified to race mm -hmm. this 200 mile race with all these people. And, you know, and you have some experience, more experience with, with it than I do. Um, but I mean, I'm up for the challenge, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do, do the best that I can, but it's, it's, it's sort of like right before you jump into anything, you know, mm -hmm. you just a little bit, a little bit on the edge of the pool here, uh, you know, about jumping into that. But I mean, I, I'm going to do things like that, but I'm also, you know, the official, uh, you know, chef for the tour of Utah. 
and we'll go there and do some cooking Good events grief. and and ha- have to have these crazy meetings with hotels of all sorts where all the riders are staying and say like you know can you guys use fresh eggs and yeah. real maple syrup and not Naturally. corn syrup and yeah and all these things and so I have my fingers in a lot of different pies both in the kitchen and and out of it and and I guess what I've realized is that I, I I'm what I think is a pretty good bike rider and a pretty good chef. And I guess I just happen to be pretty good at more than one thing as opposed to just trying to be good at one thing. And so I'm lucky for that. And, and, but so dividing my time in the balance is difficult, but like all people, I try. Um, diversification is everything. For me, cycling very much still is a therapy and it's something that I need, if not every day, very often. And, and it's, you know, it's this way to let off steam or recharge my, my system or, or let the mind spin and sort of think of a new creative idea for whatever project it is that I'm working on. How instrumental is cycling in your, in your actual profession in the kitchen um, and especially with a 20-year hiatus from the bike? I mean, did you, be, did you become a different chef when you were... Uh, able to find that that time on the bike. Totally. I mean, what what I realize is, especially as a person who has to manage a bunch of other people um, and and deal with about you know p- people management is about ma- identifying everyone's personalities, what what makes everyone tick, and then trying to pull all those things together into a team that's cohesive to go after you know one or sometimes multiple objectives and and to get to get the best out of everybody that's there. And that can obviously be extensively difficult mm-hmm. um, and ongoingly difficult. And so that requires you to be clear and focused yourself. And so if you're not, everything is harder, especially if you're, everyone's looking to you for that direction. And, and I, I suppose what I figured when I got back on riding and stuff, that that is, that is literally like, to use a culinary term, my marinating time. Because <laughs> I, I will go out and, and ruminate on all these things for five hours and then come back. And you don't really, and I guess what's nice about it is that you, on a five-hour ride, let's say, can think about these things on and off intermittently without ever really having to focus on them Mm -hmm. because there's that meditative state you get into when you're just kind of pedaling down a road. And so you could pick them up and put them down a hundred times in that five hours and make a little progress and then come back a little clearer about it, a little less stressed. And certainly you're tiring yourself out, so whatever pent-up aggravation you have is all kind of just exiting. You're literally sweating out your aggravation. That By the time you get back, nothing's that big of a deal. You feel good. Mm-hmm. You feel better. And, you know, I've never felt so clear in my life as I have being back in cycling and, and applying that sort of clarity to my, to my culinary career. So I think it's made me a calmer chef, um, a less frustrated chef, a better leader, a better mentor. Um, so if my cooks are listening mm-hmm. when I'm out riding my bike, it's good for you. You know, that's <laughs> good, Matt time. How many, uh, how many of your coworkers have you convinced to get on bike rides? You know, a lot. Um, I, a lot. There's, there's, you know, it was amazing. I've, I've had two chefs that have come with me to Italy and, and done trips there and gone and literally you know, visited wineries and visited chefs and, and done, done it mostly by bike. And of course, like took in the Giro for a day or something. Um, so that's been, been really interesting and, and really good for them. And, and you, typically what happens sort of 
chef lifespan is young, skinny, <laughs> fast, mm-hmm. right? And then mm-hmm. you hit like mid 20s, maybe early 30s, maybe. But at some point you hit the, and all of a sudden then you get fat. <laughs> because you stand on your feet all day. And although you'd be convinced that you have some incredible workload by standing on your feet, I think that it's stressful but it doesn't burn calories. And so if you just stand there all day, and once I remember one of my servers told me one time she had a one of those pedometers and figured out that she walked 10,000 steps in a service and that's four hours. You know, she walks 10,000 steps. And so I said, oh, well, I mean, I'm standing all day. Give it to me. And I put it on first thing in the morning and I took it off at the end of the night and I had walked like a thousand steps <laughs> in nine, nine or 10 hours yeah. because you, you are in a three foot radius unless you're going around running back and forth. So yeah. this sedentary but long-standing thing is becomes very stressful but not very vigorous. And so at some point, you need some kind of balance. And it doesn't have to be cycling, but it needs to be something. Some kind of, some kind of uh, you know, because it's not normal to stand in one place or stand in one small area for such a long period of time. And those that takes its toll. And then it's funny how many of people that I've worked with that eventually in the kitchen come with some kind of back problem. Uh-huh. And what they don't realize is that that back problem is caused because I think, you know, you stand around, your core is not strong. You're not doing a lot of exercise. And so unless you can address that balance, yeah. at some point you're just waiting for your lower back to start sure. hurting. Uh, then it knocks you out. So cycling is such an instrumental part of my life and that, that is something that I, I love and value and it's this thing that I can share with my wife and family and friends. Um, I often question how well would I do if it was torn away from me permanently, you know, if I had such a horrific accident that, that I could not ride a bike. Could I live without the bicycle in my life? And you have experienced that at a young age when the sport is torn away from you. Graciously, you've, you've been able to get back into it. Sort of twofold question. If you weren't riding a bike, what do you suppose would be your release? What would be your your therapy? Um, I guess it's less twofold, and that's that's the direct question. Uh, knowing, you know, from the perspective of somebody who has had it torn away, are you a reader? Are you a? Would you get into to, you know, CrossFit and do ten thousand pushups every hour? Yeah, I, you know, I, I I almost wouldn't know because. I, right, it's such I, a stupid I, hypothetical question, but well, I no, kinda, but I mean, I chew I, on it for a lot. me, it was very real to have that ripped away from me, and, and I, I, I remember thinking, sort of, my life was over, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't until, yeah, I mean, really, all I could do at some point was stand on crutches in the kitchen, and I could tell my parents, you know, hey, <laughs> I used to watch uh, like Jacques Pepin and Julia Child, yeah, yeah. and so my dad would come home from work, and I'd say. Dad, I need um, two center-cut steaks of uh, filet mignon. Actually, Chateaubriand is the name. And, you know, I need this kind of blue cheese, and I would like a bottle of port wine, and, like, (laughs) this most ridiculous, expensive grocery list. And, I mean, sometimes maybe it was indulged a little bit, but probably not. Uh Um, But, you know, I, I would stand on crutches and cook. And I guess I obsessively threw myself into cooking, and as time went on, into professional cooking, um, that that sort of maybe replaced my obsession with cycling for a time. And, you know, I through that level of dedication to that, much like my level of dedication to cycling, I would have hoped would have made, you know, made me successful in cycling. It certainly made me successful as a chef. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, for a long time, 
didn't have the life balance that I needed that cycling has given me. And so I, I just love riding bikes. So for me, that's what works. I don't know that I, I'm not a great runner. And with my leg, I, st I still don't know that I would ever be a great runner. It's just not a natural thing for me. But endurance, exercise, and, and repetitive things. Or between two trees. Between two trees, two olive trees. Two olive trees. And a lamp. No, there's no ferns here. Is that Galifianakis? Yeah. Yeah. I think people think that we're actually just conversing, holding fake mics. Yeah. Because we look so natural. This is what we do. We just we chill. So, we look so calm. But I think for me, cycling and cooking being two kind of equal passions in my life that I'm able to follow uh -huh. um, has really been the, literally the best of both worlds for me. Uh -huh. and, and I'm glad that I was able to find that. And, you know, I have a lot of people that, I mean, I would thank people like you for helping me get back to that. People like George Hincapi, Chris Carmichael. There's been a bunch of people that have, I've come across over the years, um, you know, in riding. Um, and there's, you know, the cycling world is, it can be a very wonderful supportive community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, you would, you would see that in all the people that, you've been able to ride with and make connections with and, and, you know, even post professional racing yeah, career. Almost especially post facto. Um, and that was a, a conscious decision. You know, we're here riding with Christian Meyer. Um, you know, I lived in Girona together, raced against each other and, and it's been refreshing to hang out with him this week and talk about, um, you know, our, our, our infatuation with the sport and our ability to ride after our professional careers and and really embrace the sport and ride for the right reasons and step away from uh, the competitive side of it, but still have that love for the sport. So, right, it is it is this community. It's the greater cycling community, and then uh, you know not only that, but introducing people to the to the sport of cycling and this crazy thing we've thrown our lives behind for the previous couple decades. Um, well, zeroing in on. 40 minutes that I've extended to your chamois time for the day, which I'm very happy to have done. Uh, typically, we wrap up with three questions. So without further ado, one, what is your favorite place to ride a bike? Two, what is the one place that you've never ridden but that you long to ride a bike? And three, with whom, anywhere, anyone in the world, alive or otherwise, would you like to ride a bike? Let's see. Favorite place to ride a bike? I, I would say Northern California where I live. Um, and I would say that because the weather here is so great. And living in San Francisco, I've often thought, gee, this place is awfully expensive. I should move somewhere else. And then I start to look at a map, a map of the United States, a map of other places. And I eventually realized that there's virtually no place other than probably a few places in Europe, which are not convenient for my work schedule, <laughs> um, that I can live where the weather is so great um, and that we have the ability to be on the coast, in the mountains. All these things are close by. So I, I do uh, tire of going over the Golden Gate Bridge with all the tourists from time to time. 
um, because I pretty much have to start and end every ride with that, being in the city and then riding north. But other than that, um, the climbs and roads of Northern California are a lot of fun. And being up here in Healdsburg has been an interesting hub to work out of for me because if I'm staying here in Healdsburg, can go that much further north or that much further east or west than you ever could leaving from San Francisco. Healdsburg's kind of a turnaround point at that point mm-hmm. um, from San Francisco. So really great, but I love doing um, all kinds of epic stuff. I and mean, we, we rode the coast ride together in January this year, and that was a lot of fun. And you start to realize, that, how many other places could I ride for four or five days in a row uh, in four or 500 miles? Mm-hmm. And that's, in January. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so California itself is, is a, is a, a special place to, uh, to be able to ride consistently. Um, where would I like to ride? I would love to do all of the sort of Tour de France climbs. I mean, they're, you know, they talk about these climbs are 49 K long. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm a, I'm a masochist. So I love doing that kind of stuff. And I, I love that, you know, the super long rides and the, the super long climbs and those kind of things, but I've never really ridden a bike in France. I don't think I've ever ridden a bike in France, actually. So I'd like to fix that. Nice. You can um, you can roll into Michelin HQ and be like, greetings, bonjour. Yeah, we watched, I mean, Merci. You know, the Tour de France is, is this epic sort of pinnacle for the cycling community, and I've never been on any of those roads. So, you know, I'm aware of what the Alpe d'Huez and the Ventoux and all these things. And so it'd be kind of cool to, do that stuff and so i think i'm gonna get that on my bucket list to do mm-hmm. what's what's question three um which I'll, I'll follow up your question too by also saying like your last name zaccarino you have italian heritage you've uh i know you've experienced some some fine european riding with the likes of ngamba so nice places to ride a bike it's not like you're you're this island of california like you've seen some cool spots so post uh strada bianca i did a, i did a six hour ride with 10 dam oh wicked which yeah. was which was hilarious because he, he he raced he raced Strada Bianchi the day before, and then and then <laughs> he, he needed a six hour shakeout. Yeah, and he needed a six hour shakeout ride, and he literally would not let me ever take a pull uh-huh. for 115 miles or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. What a but case. it was a, and it was an amazing huge loop that we did from town to town, and we stopped for a sandwich and yeah. I mean, but you know, those are the things that make it. They make it all incredibly, incredibly worth it to be on a bike and do stuff. I mean, you know, Sagan came into dinner to the restaurant recently, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and just said, like, let's go for a ride. You know, he had to he had to do a photo shoot, of course. I mean, he does you know all these things. You do a very good Sagan uh, impersonation. I don't think he's a listener, so he wouldn't be offended. <laughs> Hello, chef. Yeah. Hello, I'm Peter Sagan. <laughs> so he said, you know, we're riding over here. Come the next day, and I realized at some point that. They were riding up Seven Sisters, which is on Mount Tam. Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, we're consistently over about 350 watts going up that thing. And and so we there were a bunch of sponsor people that were with us, and they all got dropped. And at one point, I realized it was me, Daniel Oss, and Peter Sagan riding up Seven Sisters, which was kind of a cool moment. And then uh, our friend Nate, mm-hmm. who works for Osmo, yeah, yeah. happened to be with us, and he could hang. Uh-huh. So he got in front of us and took a picture of us. And so I have this picture of me with Daniel Oss and Peter Sagan. And how would that have ever happened? <laughs> um, so that's that's that was a cool one. But, I mean, those are the cool moments. And I think a lot of times the rides are as much about who they're with as they are about where they are. And so if you can get both, it's pretty awesome. That's poetry, man. You're good. Okay, well, that that is the perfect segue to question number three, which is with whom... 
living or dead, alive or otherwise, fictitious or non, with whom would you like to ride a bike? I think I'm going to find out on June 2nd when we ride Dirty Kanza, DK200. I was going to say, well, June 1st, show up for Dirty Kanza. Oh, sorry. June 2nd, show up for the shakeout ride. I won't be doing that. Um, I'll be shaking Perjudos on the 2nd. Yes. So I think I'll find out on June 1st. We got, we line up for dirty we've been discussing that. There's no shortage of uh, heavy hitters and newbies and everything in between coming to DK. But I, I imagine that in a competitive nature, mm-hmm. which that race will be, or that will be, that ride will be. Fact. That will be the most talented group that I have ever lined up with for a competitive event, a truly competitive event in my life. That's so, cool. So I, I will... On June 1st, yep. I'll be there on the 1st, thank yep. you. Excellent. Um, on June 1st, I will find out a lot of things. About, <laughs> That's outstanding. Well, about. yeah, I mean, your, your, your reintroduction to cycling, and, and so long have I've known you, it's been very much uh, with a road racing presence. You enjoy road racing, and it's nice to see you dipping your toe into the gravel world. Seeing, you know, this this broader spectrum. And, and you know, that said, I, I really do appreciate your appreciation for road riding because that is where my heritage is. And I want to see, I want to see road racing to continue to thrive amid gravel booming. Well, I think, I think that the draw to gravel among, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people are drawn to gravel, but I guess what draws me to it is these, like this 200 miles, right? Mm -hmm. This epic challenge that, you know, we've, we've all gone. I mean, I, I regularly do 100-plus-mile training rides. So why not double up? Well, right, but it's like, you know, if my, if my Sunday is 118, 120, 130 miles and by myself, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, good. So You so, don't want to go out and just bang out a 200-mile training ride for a 200-mile Kansas. So I always keep it like, you know, up, up, up. Oh, I mean, I'm just saying those are the long ones, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You just but, have the benefit of a... So this is sort of that next level. I mean, these these multi-day rides are that next level for me uh-huh. of, uh-huh. you know, just look at, looking for that stronger drug. Far out. Well, great answers, great conversation, great meals. Thank you very much uh, for an exquisite week. I went eight consecutive meals that you had cooked here uh, in Healdsburg. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner for all out of a wood fired oven. Two and a half days out of a wood fired mobile oven. And then I took one meal off. And then I think I've had three consecutive more meals, which has me feeling well fueled. So, Matt Acarino, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate the, the camaraderie on the bike, the amazing food you've been whipping up. This has been a pleasure. And I look forward to hanging out in Emporia, Kansas, if not sooner. Cheers. Hey there, folks. I want to thank Matt once again for taking the time for sharing some really heartfelt insight into what makes his world go round. I really enjoyed being part of that conversation. So thank you, Matt Acarino. I also want to thank Splat Sunscreen for supporting today's pod. Again, Splats provides high-performing sunscreen for athletes and people on the go. Their individual use packets are ideal for stowing in a jersey pocket, a backpack, keep it in your car, in your saddlebag, wherever. Check them out, splatssunscreen.com. I've been using splats this year, and I want to remind you to keep your eyes peeled for them at Leadville, at SBTGRVL, Steamboat, 
and others can't make it to those events, folks, visit them at splatsunstreet.com and use code KING at checkout for 20% savings. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for listening. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.